Welcome to All Things Green. I'm Anton, here with my co-host Shelby, to discuss a variety of topics from across the sustainability universe. Shelby, how are you today? I'm doing well. I've been busy. I've got an event coming up soon. Okay. Can I hear about this event? Absolutely. You're invited. So is anybody Thank who's you. local to Northeast Ohio or the Cleveland area. Nice. Um, have you heard of the Nourishing Power Network? Never. Okay. So Nourishing Power Network is a project that comes out of three different local organizations. So the Mary Ann Swetland Center for Environmental Health, that's a department out of Case Western Reserve University. Mm-hmm. Um, also the FAIR project. FAIR is Food Access Raises Everyone. Uh, and then fi- finally Neighborhood Connection. So those are three organizations that came together in Cleveland and said food justice is a problem here. Yeah. We know that we have issues with complex and unjust food systems. Also, there's a lack of access to food. And so those organizations are working together with lots of community partners to address those systems. Yeah, I'm lucky enough to be on the advisory council for the network. It's been one of my favorite things I've ever gotten to do in my career, working with really incredible people, everyone from urban farmers to uh, people who sell food to people who have their own community gardens. I mean, all sorts of different people. Yeah. I am not sure how I got invited. Um, that sounds like <laughs> such a cool network, though. Seriously, what an, an important group of people. It's so cool. I love being a part of it. And one of the things that we do as the network is networking events mm. so that people who are interested in the intersections between food and justice and environment can all come together. So we have this Juneteenth event that's going on in partnership with the Buckeye Summer Soul Series, uh, which is a community group in the neighborhood, the Buckeye neighborhood of Cleveland. So we're going to throw this event together. There's food, there's music, uh, and just a lot of people who care about food and justice. So free event, come on out, and I'll see everybody there. Yeah, let's make sure to throw that one in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. We'll make sure that we put the uh, flyer so that people can figure out how to get there. It's going to be really exciting. It's the Saturday before Juneteenth. That's awesome. Awesome. I'll see you there, I guess. Yeah. Well, Shelby, today's episode is all about green technology. Great. I love it. I don't know a lot about it, but I'm excited to hear a little bit from you. Yeah. And I from you. (laughs) (laughs) Where where are we starting? So the the first thing that I wanted to start with was uh, PFAS in drinking water. Now, PFAS we've talked about in previous episodes. If you didn't catch that segment, I'm just going to do a quick snappy... Honestly, I probably need it. Yeah, it's complicated, so I'd like to hear it all yeah. again. Yeah. So PFOS is a synthetic material that's created, man-made. Uh, there's about 4,700 different varieties of PFOS that are made, and some of these PFOS are found in dental floss, food packaging, cosmetics, mm. nonstick pans. The list goes on. I use all those things. Yeah, me too, right? Yeah. Just sorry to clarify, um, I'm sure you've said this to us before, but is PFOS like something we're making on purpose or it's like a byproduct of something else we're trying to make? Yeah, it's something that's made on purpose. Got it. Okay, got it. And again, it's found in a lot of our synthetics, plastic materials, stuff like that. And uh, it's bad for us. It's really Mm -hmm. bad. It's a forever chemical, so it's going to stick around for forever. Actually, a crazy stat that I found was that Uh, Forever chemicals are found in the bloodstream of 97% of Americans and also on every continent, including the snow in Antarctica. Whoa. Okay, so we say forever and we also mean everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Okay, this sounds bad. Yeah. But I think you're going to turn it around. Yes, I will, more or less. Okay, great. Um, But also, just so so our viewers know, like this PFOS, it's going to affect, it's going to cause cancer, it's going to cause infertility, liver damage. 
and uh, hormonal issues, things mm. like that. So these are these are really bad chemicals. Some people have them in their drinking water. Some people can't even get the testing or afford the testing to see if it's in their drinking water. Mm. But this technology, hopefully, is going to help turn those things around. Um, technology like the one that they developed in the United States. Um, Arizona State University actually developed tech that uses uh, organisms like bacteria to eat away at this PFOS. Okay. Yeah, so I think that's kind of cool, kind of using nature to take care of some of those forever chemicals that are really hard to get rid of, right? Yeah, nature-based solutions. I like to hear it. This is all sounding really good. Another one is in Canada. Uh, They actually use electrons. They like shoot electrons through the PFOS to kind of break it up. And this is all groundbreaking. PFOS has been really difficult to destroy in the past. Um, I'm not a chemist, but I guess the carbon fluoride bonds uh, are sorry, carbon fluorine bonds, they're really tough to break. And mm. so that those toxic chemicals get into our drinking water and stuff like that, it's really bad. Um, but kind of the drawbacks of, I think, green tech in general is sometimes we can put our faith a little bit too much in green tech mm. and it kind of enables our current bad behaviors, right? I see what you're saying, yeah. And so if we, we, we hope that this can get scaled up. Right now it's not a scaled up technology. And even if it does get scaled up, we need to make sure that it would get distributed equitably so that communities that are poor can afford to make sure that their wells and their drinking water is still safe from PFAS. Right. So it sounds like what you're saying is this could be good because we already have PFAS, so we should take care of what we have, but like, it's not going to solve if we're making more. Exactly. And so that's kind of what I want to get into for this second half of uh, the the first segment. Mm -hmm. Um, Canada actually has created a very strict ban to protect Canadians. Uh, They actually recognized the danger of PFAS and they implemented a full prohibition, manufacture, sale, use and import of PFAS. Wow, that sounds great, but we have not done that in the U.S.? So the United States, as a federal government, hasn't regulated this. Got it. Um, There are some states that are taking some really cool steps. Maine, in particular, um, is working towards banning PFAS outright, which is really great. Yeah. Uh, Other states are more lax. So it really kind of depends where you live, Um, and that's kind of a bummer because some people will be protected, some people won't. Um, but who's to say that that PFAS may not, you know, migrate down through the Ohio River down to the Mississippi or something, you know, like that exposure is very real still. Yeah. It's like the geography of health where I happen to live in a state that's going to regulate PFAS. That's probably not true in Ohio, but if I were in Maine, whereas someone living elsewhere is not going to get the same benefits. Yeah, exactly. And if you're interested in this, um, there's actually a really cool movie that I saw in theaters in 2019. In theaters. In theaters. <laughs> back really... when that used to be a thing. Oh, I still go to the movies. Not I. Okay. Well, but you did it th- for this one. This was worth it In 2019. It, for you. it was worth it. Um, it stars Mark Ruffalo, and he plays a lawyer from Cincinnati mm. who investigates kind of uh, why cattle and people are getting sick in West Virginia. It's actually because this company, DuPont, who creates the nonstick pans, uh, there's been a leak of PFOS into mm. the system. So I really encourage you to check out Dark Waters. Dark Waters. film from 2019. Check it out in the show notes. No longer available in theaters, but probably streaming yes. near you. Exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah, that sounds really good. Plus, I love Mark Ruffalo. Me too. The Hulk, 
other stuff. <laughs> Anton's not really a movie guy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I've seen like four movies. 13, Dark Waters is one of them. 13 Going on 30 is my personal oh, yeah. favorite. Just throwing it out there if anyone wants to do a Mark Ruffalo like movie night, yeah. you know. But that, That's the one where he sits on the swing set? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I've yeah. seen that one. Or at least that part. Heck yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so he's in this movie. So we can yes. all learn about PFAS. Yes. Yeah. It really brings it close to home as somebody who lives in Ohio. Uh, I don't know. I guess the incident happened in West Virginia, but he plays a lawyer from Cincinnati, so that's cool. Shout out Ohio. We'll take <laughs> Shout it. Shout out Ohio, exactly. So anyways, Shelby, I wanted to hear about your next segment. Uh, maybe not PFOS related, but still greatly important. Absolutely. And another technology that we don't think is bad, but maybe isn't being used the way that it could be or should be. So you talked about technology that can help remove PFOS with the big caveat of yeah, that'll help with the PFOS we already have, but if we keep making it, not yeah, so good. Right. I'm going to talk about a technology that's really good, but probably not in the way that we're using it, at least in this case. So we're talking solar farms, which okay. is a good thing, right? Yeah, I like solar farms. I like solar farms too, yeah. theoretically, and, and oftentimes in practice. But uh, an article from The Guardian that was uh, released in the last month wanted to talk about a particular solar farm that's really more like a solar operation yeah. in the Mojave Desert. Um, so that is the, to like set the scene and put us in the correct geography, the Mojave Desert is between Los Angeles and Phoenix. Um, it's also the former land of the Mojave indigenous people and mm -hmm. several other tribes. Okay. Uh, so it's a really important part of our, our culture, our history as a nation. Um, and there's also all sorts of ecosystems that exist in the yeah. desert. And I want you to imagine that you're walking through the Mojave desert mm -hmm. and you look out in front of you and you see the reflections of a giant lake. Wow. I can picture it. Yeah. Yeah. But mm -hmm. it's not a mirage. Okay. But it's also not something you can like drop your boat into or get any water out of because it's not a lake of water. It looks like a lake because there are just acres and acres of solar panels. Yeah, that's that's a lot of solar panels. It's, it's a lot. It literally looks like a lake. It literally looks like a lake. They actually quoted um, an organizer in the article where they said they had someone pull up to the side and be like, how do I get my boat into this lake? And they had to go, serious? no, not a lake. Yeah, because it looks like it. You That's can, wild. As always, we'll link this, and you can see lots of photos in the article that we're referencing. It does look like water from above and kind of out to the side of it. But, like, that's so crazy that somebody who actually owns a boat thought it was a lake. A hundred percent. People who own boats generally can identify a lake when they see one. <laughs> <laughs> no judgment. <laughs> no, I'm just saying. I'm not saying that person probably knows what a lake looks I'm just saying it probably looks it, like a lake that much. It really does, yes. But it's not about whether or not it looks like a lake. That's not what your article is about. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. And it kind of, it actually kind of is, and oh, we'll okay. get into it okay, cool. uh, in some ways. So right. it's enormous. We think of a solar farm. This is much more than a solar farm. Um, it is the Riverside East Solar Energy Zone, and it stretches 150,000 acres throughout the Mojave Desert, wow. which is larger than Manhattan by 10 times. Wow. 
Wow. I'm not from New York City, so that metric doesn't mean as much to me as someone who's from New York City. But I know Manhattan <laughs> is an island, and if it's bigger than a portion of New York City, I mean, that's that's yeah. a lot of solar. Um, it's one of the world's largest concentrations of solar plants, and that's important because solar right now is only about 3% of the U.S. electricity. But we're hoping, or at least the Biden administration is pushing, to try to get solar to be about 45%. That would uh, be dope. By 2050. It totally would. Solar is a green energy. It's utilizing the sun's rays to produce energy, electricity, which is what we want. But kind of as with your first article where it was like a technology that we like, but it wasn't necessarily something that was going to solve the whole problem. Yeah. This also is a technology that we like, but it's producing some of its own problems. Uh-huh. So when you think about a desert... What are you thinking about as far as the ecosystem? What does it look like to you? Kind of yeah. animals and plants are you picturing? Okay, I'm thinking of like a cactus. Yeah. A snake. Yeah. A scorpion. Oh yeah. A lizard. Maybe like a an owl in the cactus. Yeah, all of those things are true, and <laughs> and that's just kind of what we can see above land. But there's also so much going on below the surface. And so when you install solar panels, you have to disrupt the earth below you, the yeah. soil. There's also plant life. A lot of it looks like little shrubs, mm. tiny shrubs that almost look dead from where we are. Yeah. But there's this intense network of roots below the surface. Oh. And so as we disrupt that, we're disrupting this huge network. Uh, a researcher that was quoted called it an underground forest. And it sequesters wow. carbon. It can sequester it for thousands of years if it's not disturbed. So putting in this many solar panels in an ecosystem like the Mojave Desert is making us less likely to be able to sequester carbon. That's and wild. It, yes. And you mentioned all sorts of different animals that live in the desert. And they, as we've discussed before, are part of a larger ecosystem. Yeah. And it all sort of relies on each other. Uh, other things to think about are there are rules in place about how close solar panels can be to try to allow room for creatures to yeah. move among them. But if a man with a boat is looking at that and thinking it's a lake, you can imagine that it confuses animals too. Yeah. It gets in the way of natural migration patterns and birds will actually dive down onto the panels thinking that it's water. Oh my gosh. And they die. It's a big deal. Those <laughs> and poor birds. I know. I'm sorry. I should have given you like a bird trigger death warning. trigger warning. Yeah. <laughs> I know how you feel about birds. Um, so that's what we're thinking about in terms of plant life and animal life. But there are also people there current and also the history of former people. So there are cultural landmarks from the Mojave and other indigenous tribes, and there are modern day people living in the desert still. They are complaining about the noise that comes from putting in this many solar panels and managing all of that. Yeah. They're complaining about the dust that is pushed into the air as you're installing these. Um, there's also just the idea that why does it have to be here? Why are mm. you encroaching closer and closer to my community? So we're not anti-solar here. Right. We like solar. I like solar. But where is that solar located 
a lot of people in these communities are arguing, you're putting this here because you think the desert is just nothing. When there are millions of homes in other parts of California, Phoenix, we talked yeah. about this when we talked about the Colorado River and all of these people that live in desert areas and rely on that water. Yeah. They could put solar panels on their homes. Oh, 100%. It's already a built structure. Yes. You've already mucked up the nature, so. Yes, exactly. <laughs> if they're if we're already sustaining life yeah. in the desert, we're diverting resources like the Colorado River to maintain the lifestyle of people who are living in the desert. And I'm not saying that nobody has them. There are solar panels on some of these homes, but we could do a lot more. And that would be, as you said, in places where we've already built up infrastructure. Yeah. Also, everything coming from this east solar energy zone has to travel a really long way, thousands of miles, and it costs millions of dollars. And that, to me, feels like nimbyism. We've yeah. talked about that before. Mm -hmm. Not in my backyard. Right. We love solar. I don't want to see it. Yeah. Put it somewhere else and then take the energy required and the money required to transport it to me so that I get all the benefits of solar without having to look at what a solar panel looks like. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. It so, would be a privilege to, to look at solar panels in my neighborhood, honestly. Absolutely. And we, <laughs> we live in a place where it's, it's not that sunny and you can absolutely do solar here, but this is an area where you can like maintain a whole home on solar energy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, it is something that we've talked about before. It's not equally distributed. We are choosing poor communities. A yeah. lot of the community members quoted in the article were saying things like they think we're a bunch of rednecks, you know, living in the desert. And so they didn't think we were going to push back. But good on them for organizing and yeah. coming together and getting an article like that out there. I don't know what the right solution is here. We try to be solutions oriented. I can see steps like putting solar on the roofs of yeah. homes that are already in the desert. Um, but I don't know what you do to dismantle um, or maybe just better utilize the enormous solar operation going on in the Mojave. I'm not sure what the right answer is, but I thought it was important to talk about because that's technology that we really like and we should be aware of both the positive and negative outcomes. Yeah, I think that's really wise to bring that up. And yeah, we can't just blindly follow and say, hey, this solar thing right here is great. Like there's gonna be winners and losers in this situation. And I'm so glad that we could talk about that on the podcast. Today. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of our conversations around electric vehicles. You know, yeah. <laughs> we, we get up and say, EV is so good. And yeah. I'm glad that we've talked about positives and negatives there. And this is just another example. And I think you might have one more for us today. Yes. Yeah. Our final segment. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, carbon capture, mm -hmm. uh, also carbon sequestration, but really focusing on carbon capture. Okay. So carbon capture is when there are facilities, whether they be coal or uh, a fracking natural gas operation. Um, a lot of that carbon is ideally captured from the get-go. Um, there's, other, there's other examples of carbon dioxide removal that are maybe not necessarily on site. Uh, but a lot, of what, uh, a lot of what experts are saying is that carbon capture it might not be the end-all, be-all. Not it, a silver bullet. Not a silver bullet, right? And a lot of the controversy around carbon capture actually stemmed from an intergovernmental panel on climate change. That's the IPCC. Mm -hmm. um, they talked about how carbon capture has a huge uh, future with solving climate change. And some scientists believe that. Others are saying, hey, 
Carbon capture has failed the last 50 years. It hasn't been scaled up now, and it's too expensive to implement as is. Mm. Um, and so we can't just say that our solution is carbon capture moving forward. A lot of scientists are saying, we know that the solution right now is to start cutting down on fossil fuels, and that's got to be the future that we're aspiring to, not saying, okay, I hope that we can implement carbon capture in the next 15 or 20 years and hope that it works and it works seamlessly because in 20 years, the earth is going to be in a less better place than uh, it is now. This feels like deja vu, like the first segment all over again, except now we're talking carbon. So first segment, we talk about the fact that, yeah, there are some emerging technologies that can eat away at PFAS, these things that we thought were forever. Maybe there are things that can make them less bad, but we also maybe should stop relying on them. And it sounds similar here that, yes, we are working on harm reduction. Mm-hmm. That's the language in public health that we use, harm reduction yeah. instead of a perfect solution. And that maybe this is a part of that, Yeah. but that it would be better if we just pulled back from producing so much carbon in the first place. Exactly. And I'm, I'm not against the fact that carbon... Uh, carbon sequestration or pulling carbon out of the atmosphere is a bad idea necessarily. There's still a lot of drawbacks that I'm skeptical of. So like for instance, let's talk about uh, a little bit of a greenwash. Oh, Uh, ding, ding, ding. Yeah, ding, 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 greenwash alert. Um, (laughs) uh, The oil and gas companies actually want to take this carbon, which is a liquefied solution at this point that's been shipped over by a pipeline uh, you have to build that pipeline, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, they actually want to move it to a site where there is a current injection well for fracking. Mm. And they want to take that carbon, shoot it down into the earth, just like a- another injection well, and hopefully push that oil that's still down there closer to their other injection well. So they're actually using this carbon capture to extract more fossil fuels. I knew you'd be able to work fracking into this somehow. Yeah, somehow, <laughs> I, find, somehow I find a way. But we have to we have to think about this. Like one injection well is already bad enough. Adding a pipeline that is known to corrode and even explode. There was an instance where thirty something people died uh, because a pipeline just exploded. A carbon capture pipeline, um, and making communities more vulnerable to accidents and the oil and gas industry. Uh, these are all things that we have to worry about. Who's going to be paying the price of this carbon removal? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It. Feels like something that's just not been tested um, at scale. Yes. So maybe there are some benefits here, but this is not our excuse to just keep living the way that we're living. Yeah, exactly. And so I hope that the scientists keep working on it. They find uh, safer and better ways to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere to slow down the climate change, the global warming. Uh, But until then, I would like to, you know, just put out there, we got to just lay off of some of these fossil fuels, you know, even just stopping like single use plastics would greatly reduce the amount of oil that we're producing. I would love to see us move away from single use plastics as a very first step. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So that's all I got for you today, Shelby. Thank you so much for talking about all things green with me. Would you mind letting our viewers know how they can stay in touch with us? I'd love to. If you'd like to stay connected to us, be sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at One Planet Media. That's O-N-E-1. And if you'd like to rewatch full episodes, check out our YouTube channel, All Things Green Show. You can find all our sources from today's episode in our show notes. We'll be back at the same time next week to bring you more news. 
Thank you so much for being a part of the global sustainability movement. Thank you.